Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Yong Wing. Once again, a quick plug for my book. From the Wall to the Water is now available for purchase on Amazon and elsewhere. It is a travel log recounting my journey from China to Europe in the footsteps of Gan Ying, a Han Dynasty explorer on a mission to make contact with the Roman Empire. Once again, the book is From the Wall to the Water. Thank you for your support. But in thinking about my book and Gan Ying, the Eastern man who went to the West, I've been reminded of other figures in Chinese history who, one way or another, went West. Today, let's talk about one of them, someone I have a tenuous connection with because we happen to have attended the same university. And in his case, he was also the first ever Chinese national to graduate from an American university. The man known in English, which is a transliteration from his native Cantonese, as Yong Wing, is known in Mandarin as Rong Hong. He was born in 1828 in the county of Xiangshan, or Fragrant Mountain, in the province of Guangdong, on China's southern coast. Some decades later, the same Fragrant Mountain would produce a son whose fame and influence would far eclipse that of Yong Wing. That would be Sun Yat-sen. So much so, in fact, that Xiangshan itself would be renamed after Dr. Sun Yat-sen. But that was later. Yong Wing himself, perhaps he was simply unlucky enough to have been born too early, would go on to lead a life substantially filled with disappointments. China's first Yale graduate would not change history like Sun Yat-sen did. And yet, in some ways, Yong Wing was kind of a real-life Forrest Gump. Through many of the major moments of Chinese history in the second half of the 19th century, you can usually spot his silhouette somewhere in the picture. So, he was born in 1828. In 1835, through an introduction to a Prussian missionary and his British wife, Yong Wing began attending the Morrison School in Macau, which, of course, was a Portuguese possession at this time. In 1839, however, with tensions rising between Britain and Qing Dynasty China and the eve of the First Opium War, the Morrison School closed and Yong Wing returned home. In 1841, on the other side of the war, the school reopened under new management. An American missionary named Samuel Robbins Brown, 
who had graduated from Yale College, class of 1832, was now in charge of the Morrison School. And Yongwing returned, becoming Brown's pupil. The following year, with Hong Kong becoming a British crown colony, the Morrison School relocated there, taking its students, including Yongwing, with it. In 1847, Pastor Brown decided that he had had enough of the East. It didn't help that his wife was ill. And so Brown returned to the United States. But he took three students with him. One got sick and returned to Hong Kong. Another ended up relocating to Scotland to attend the University of Edinburgh. The third was Yong Wing. After spending some time at a prep school in Massachusetts, in 1850, he gained admission to Yale and graduated in 1854. In between, in 1852, he also obtained American citizenship. This was before the Chinese Exclusion Act. 1854 was a hell of a time to begin a career if your career was going to be focused on China. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which had gotten started right around the time Yong Wing was finding his way around at the campus in New Haven, by 1854 controlled a large section of China and had set up its own capital in the city of Nanjing. The young Yong Wing, freshly returned from America, actually flirted with the Taiping, meeting in Nanjing with a cousin of the leader of the Taiping, the self-proclaimed younger brother of Jesus Christ, Hong Xiuquan. Yong Wing tried to convince the Taiping to introduce certain Western ideas. And Hong Xiuquan, in turn, actually offered Yong Wing a position within the Taiping. But Yong Wing declined the offer and ended up working for a time at the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou and for the colonial government in Hong Kong. Then he took a job under Zheng Guofan, one of the most significant of late Qing mandarins. Doing so put Yong Wing directly on the opposite side of the Taiping, as Zheng Guofan was one of the top commanders leading the imperial government's efforts to crush the Taiping. And one of the first things that Zheng Guofan had Yong Wing do was to travel to the United States once more to purchase modern weapons to bring back to China for the imperial army to use against the Taiping. Interesting tidbit here is that it was now the early 1860s and civil war raged in America. Yong Wing, despite being now a servant of the Qing Empire and in America on government business, actually now volunteered for service in the Union Army. The United States government, however, politely turned him down, and Yong Wing returned to China. Also starting in the early 1860s, 
spurred on by the Second Opium War, and even with the Taiping Rebellion still ravaging parts of the country, Zheng Guofan and a few other powerful ministers began a reform movement within the government. It is sometimes called the self-strengthening movement, sometimes the Tongzhi reform, after the reigning emperor at this time, and sometimes the Yang Wu Yundong, or foreign affairs movement. The mandarins instigating this movement argued that China needed to adopt certain Western ideas and technologies in order to deal with the challenge posed by the foreign powers. One major innovation of this reform was the creation of the Zongli Yamen, essentially the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, responsible for all diplomatic dealings with foreign nations. You may be surprised to hear that the Chinese imperial governmental structure did not previously include a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Well, of course, over the millennia, the Chinese government of various dynasties had plenty of diplomatic dealings with foreign nations. But the Chinese did not traditionally think about international relations the way we do today, at least from a ceremonial, ritualistic point of view. So in past centuries, a foreign ambassador coming to China would technically be classified as the representative of a vassal kingdom presenting tributes to the Chinese emperor and seeking the empire's favor. But again, that didn't mean that in centuries past, the Chinese didn't understand the realities of political power. When a foreign nation was, in fact, more powerful than China, or at least powerful enough to present a military threat, the Chinese knew to deal with them carefully. Still, there was no formalized and modern process for diplomacy until the establishment of the Zongli Yamen. Other measures undertaken as part of the reform movement included an attempt to modernize the Qing military, both the army and the navy. And related to that, the establishment of new factories and industries, both to supply the newly modernizing military, and in some cases for civilian purposes as well. Yongwing, being American-educated, found an obvious purpose in this reform movement, working under his patron, Zheng Guofan. But, as an American-educated Chinese, a true rarity at the time, he must have cut, at best, a curious figure within Chinese officialdom. At worst, he would have been an object of contempt. Certainly the tricks of the trade of the Qing Mandarin the internal politics that allowed officials to advance in rank and to gain power would not have come easily to him. They didn't teach that stuff at Yale. Even so, in 1870, he found a project close to his heart, a project for which he is perhaps best known. If you wanted to have Western-style institutions, then you also needed personnel 
with Western knowledge to run them. Such men were obviously in short supply in China. So in 1870, Yong Wing proposed a plan to send Chinese children to study in America, much as Yong Wing himself had done at a young age. The proposal received support from Zheng Guofan, as well as Li Hongzhang, another one of the most powerful mandarins at this time. So between 1872 and 1875. The Qing government sent four cohorts of Chinese boys, totaling 120 of them, to America. Yong Wing himself received a commission as a deputy consul, posted to the United States, from which position he was supposed to serve as a kind of chaperone of these boys. But. Just as there were mandarins eager for reform, so there were just as many conservatives, desperately opposed to it. The Chinese ambassador to the United States at this time was one such conservative, and he relentlessly argued for the children to be brought back. In time, these young students gave the conservatives the excuse they needed. Some of them. Began to adopt Western ways. Some converted to Christianity. Some cut off their queues, which was illegal back in China. These sorts of faux pas, as it were, on the parts of the children, actually pointed at a central contradiction at the heart of the reform movement. You couldn't have people go abroad. To learn Western technical knowledge, while preventing them from also adopting other Western ideas, such as Christianity, or, gasp, democracy. You couldn't have people learn everything about Western engineering or medicine, and yet remain perfectly Chinese in their souls. In any event, the conservatives won this one. In 1881, the Qing court cancelled the study abroad program, and brought back all the students as well as Yong Wing. In time, though, it transpired that the program was not a total failure. After all, several children among the 120 grew up to make great contributions to modern China. One of them was Chen Tianyou. The father of the Chinese railway, and someone I remember reading about as a kid, someone held up as a national hero, not to mention another Yale man. At some point, we can do an episode just on him. After the disappointment of 1881, in 1883, Yong Wing returned to America to care for his ailing wife. And after her death in 1886, their two children. By this time, he was perhaps done with China. But China wasn't done with him. In 1894, the first Sino-Japanese War broke out. Yong Wing couldn't bring himself to remain on the sidelines. On behalf of the Qing court, he traveled to London, 
to try to secure loans from European bankers to finance the war. The mission, however, ended in failure due to indecision back in Beijing. In 1895, in the wake of Chinese defeat in the war, the 67-year-old Yong Wing moved to Shanghai and petitioned the court to authorize him to establish a central bank. But again, the court dithered on the proposal, and in the end, it came to nothing. But right when Yong Wing was reaching a point of total despair with the Qing Empire. In 1895, he made the acquaintance of the famous new reformers Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao. The new reformers believed that the earlier reform didn't go far enough, in that it didn't seek to change the Chinese political system itself. Both China and Japan began to try to learn from the West at around the same time, but. As the war demonstrated, the Japanese Meiji Restoration was a success, while Chinese efforts were a failure. Why? The reformers answered that it was because the Japanese altered their entire system of government, adopting a constitutional monarchy. In contrast, the Chinese tried to keep doing things. As they'd always done, only now with modern technology. The new reformers declared this approach to be clearly unworkable, and they renewed Yong Wing's hopes in China. He joined the new reformers, much younger men than himself. Unfortunately for the reformers, the Qing regime by now really had become unsalvageable. All their efforts led to the so-called Hundred Day Reform in 1898. Again, we'll have to do an episode just on that. But the upshot is, convinced by the reformers, Emperor Guangxu launched a series of sweeping reforms in 1898. But he moved so fast that he alarmed the conservatives, including Empress Dowager Cixi. The true power behind the throne. So after only 100 days, Cixi ordered the emperor himself arrested. Reformers like Kang Youwei, Liang Qichao, and Yong Wing suddenly became wanted men. They ran for their lives. Yong Wing hid out in the international settlement in Shanghai. The colonial area outside of Chinese jurisdiction, before sailing for Hong Kong in 1899. In the wake of the failure of the reform, as well as the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, and other demoralizing events, a septuagenarian Yong Wing finally became a revolutionary. He. Like many other Chinese intellectuals of this time, came to the conclusion that the Qing regime was hopelessly flawed. In fact, after 1900, Yong Wing participated in the plotting of three separate armed uprisings in China. 
plans for a 1903 uprising actually called for Yong Wing himself to ascend to the presidency of the republic, should the uprising succeed, which it didn't. Yong Wing then drew two Americans into Chinese revolutionary circles. One was the financier Charles Beach Booth, the other, who became an important figure in China, was the Stanford-educated military adventurer Homer Lee. Finally, in 1910, Yong Wing participated in revolutionary meetings in Long Beach, California, which Sun Yat-sen himself attended. In the end, Yong Wing returned to his adopted country, the United States. After a lifetime of disappointments, a lifetime of wishing he could make more of an impact on the fate of China, Yong Wing lived just long enough to see the Revolution of 1911 succeed, and the abolition of monarchy in China. He died in Hartford, Connecticut, in April 1912, at the age of 83. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.